Okay, let's open up in a word of prayer. Lord God, we thank you for bringing us together for this time of teaching and time of fellowship. We pray that you would bless this time. We pray that Christ would be glorified. We pray that our faith would be strengthened. We are in such need of your grace, Lord. We don't deserve it, but thank you for pouring it out upon us, Lord. Be with us now in your spirit. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so we're starting to talk on 1 Peter. When we talk about Scripture, we talk about general categories of Scripture. What would the 1 Peter, what category would that fall into? Epistle, right? So it's a pastoral letter, right? It's written to who? The church. Right? It's written to us. Some scholars call 1 Peter the most condensed New Testament resume of the Christian faith and of the conduct that it inspires. It is a model of the pastoral letter. The Apostle Peter seeks to encourage and reassure Christians in Asia Minor as stormy seasons of persecution are about to begin. But these storms rage on today. Christians are suffering under persecution in places like China, Africa, Nigeria, and other places. Is anyone familiar with Aaron, the work of Aaron Wren? Um, he's a cultural analyst. He's a Christian. Um, and he has kind of come up with this world of evangelicalism, three different worlds. And the first world, he says, was the positive world, and this would be pre-1994, okay? In this world, society at large remains post- mostly positive about Christianity. To be known as a good church-going person meant that you're a good, upstanding citizen. Publicly being a Christian is a status enhancer, Christian moral norms are the basic norms of society, and violating those norms can bring negative consequences. So that's the positive world, pre-1994. And then he says there's what's called the neutral world, from about 1994 to 2014. And here, society takes a neutral stance towards Christianity. Christianity no longer has privileged status, but but is not yet disfavored. Being publicly known as a Christian has neither positive nor negative impact on one's social status. Christianity is a valid option in the public square. Christian moral norms remain in effect to to some degree. That's the neutral world. And then around 2014 to our present day, he calls it the negative world. Okay. Now society has come to have a negative view of Christianity. Being known as a Christian is a social negative particularly in elite domains of society, the cultural influences, right? Here we can think about the government, media, technology, academia. Christian morality is expressed, expressly repudiated and seen as a threat to the public good and the new public moral order. Subscribing to Christian moral views or violating the secular moral order brings negative consequences. And he says the transformation from neutral to negative is dated around 2014, just before the Supreme Court's Obergefell decision, which institutionalized Christianity's new low status. So the reason I bring that up is, even now in our own country, we have moved from a time when the culture was neutral, or even friendly towards Christianity, to where it is now largely accepted by cultural shapers that Christians are hateful bigots. No Christian avoids suffering. However, no true Christian escapes a measure of suffering for Christ's sake. So, 
And which of these three worlds do you think most closely resembles the setting that the New Testament was written in? The negative world, right? That's right. So the New Testament, they were, they were faced basically in a negative world where Christianity was not favored. And that's where we're finding ourselves today. So the New Testament, particularly 1 Peter, is very appropriate for us to be reading right now. It speaks to us where we are. Peter speaks to all of us when he tells of suffering now and glory to come. Now Peter's pastoral letter here encourages us by instructing us. The question is, what hope do we have? Peter proclaims Jesus Christ, our sure hope now and forever. Throughout his letter, he grounds our hope in the reality of what God has done and will yet do for us through Christ. Peter is a witness, not just to what Jesus did and said while he was in his fishing boat or in his house, but he is a witness to the meaning of Christ's life, death, resurrection, and ascension and what that means for us. In this letter, he shows us what the story means for us as Jesus calls us to take up our cross and follow him. Any questions or thoughts so far before we move on? So Peter writes this letter to the churches in Asia Minor. Most of them in modern-day Turkey would be included. And that's what the map is here. These are the churches that he is writing to. Now, Peter did write the letter, Simon Peter, the well-known and loved disciple of Christ, whom we read in the Gospels and the Acts of the Apostles. Both church history and internal evidence within the epistle prove very strong evidence that one Peter was, in fact, written by the Apostle of Jesus. Evidently, Peter's words were written down by Silvanus, who was a traveling companion of Paul for some time, and here acted as Peter's scribe. That Peter was likely writing with a scribe may account for the more complex Greek that First Peter has. And, the, and this is a reason why, um, well, that's a reason often used why people say First Peter was not actually written by Peter, because it has more of advanced Greek. But the fact that he's using a scribe can easily explain that. The use of a scribe was not an uncommon feature of either the New Testament material or other writings of the first century. So when was it written? Well, Peter was believed to have died in A.D. 67 in the persecutions of Nero, being hung upside down on a cross. We know from historical sources that persecution arising from anti-Christian sentiments grew strong in Rome around A.D. 64, during the reign of Nero. And Peter makes reference to Babylon in chapter 5, which is likely a veiled reference to Rome. In view of the references to persecution and suffering in this epistle, it seemed probable that Peter wrote this letter to give comfort to suffering believers between the time of intense Christian suffering and his own death. So if we had to pick the theme of First Peter, what would it be? Someone say Jesus? I did. That's good. <laughs> just, just to fill that out a little bit. It's hope through Jesus in the midst of suffering. Absolutely. So what is the purpose of 1 Peter? Well, let me ask you this. Was Mark an apostle, the person who wrote the book of Mark? Was he an apostle? No? 
No, he's not. So if he was not an apostle, why do we accept Mark as part of the canon, as part of the Bible? If Mark was not an apostle, why do we accept the Gospel of Mark as part of the Bible? He was a witness. He was a witness. But really, we need apostolic authority, right? We need someone who's commissioned by Christ to sound his word. Is there an apostolic witness behind the Gospel of Mark? Is there an apostle who stands behind the writing of Mark? It's Peter. Really, the apostolic authority about the Gospel of Mark rests on Peter. In the same way, Luke. Luke was not an apostle, right? What, what apostle stands behind Luke? Whose apostolic authority stands behind Luke? Paul. Paul, very good. So Peter's purpose in writing this letter is not to give us a first announcement about the words and works of Jesus. That has already been done in the Gospel of Mark. Peter's purpose here is to encourage Christians to persevere in their suffering by setting before them the hope of grace reserved for them, as well as the glory of Jesus Christ. So then we'll move on to the synopsis. I'm not going to go through all that. I think I've included that in the handout there. I've also included a, 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 an outline. We won't go through that as well. So let's jump into the text. Verses 1 and verses 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So Peter opens his epistle by identifying himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now this title carries with it all sorts of rich characteristics. Peter is indeed one of the twelve apostles. He walked alongside Jesus. He is even considered, along with James and John, to be part of the inner three who bore witness to intimate details of Christ and incredible miracles. Now, since Peter bears the indelible mark of an apostle, his words carry a unique status of authority. It is with this authority that he writes to these churches in Asia Minor. It is with this authority that this gospel, this letter applies to us. So after identifying himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ, Peter spends a considerable amount of time identifying his audience. Peter calls them the elect and scattered exiles. Now these two labels, elect and scattered exiles, function on two levels. Peter uses two labels that recall Israel in the Old Testament and attributes them to largely the churches in Asia Minor. So the inescapable conclusion is that Peter considers his audience to be part of the true Israel, the true church of God. The churches are scattered exiles, a term that traditionally refers to Israelites outside the promised land. Using this language, Peter refers to his audience on a redemptive historical plane. What that means is that the new creation that the Old Testament so often speaks above, about arrives only partially. Peter's audience is caught between the overlap of two ages, the age of the new creation 
and the age of rebellion. He views Gentiles as new creation exiles sojourning through the old age. So verse 2 states how the church compromises the elect. He says, Who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Now the phrase sprinkled with his blood, that echoes Exodus 24.8 when Moses sprinkles the blood on Israelites, ratifying the covenant. Now these Gentiles have been graciously brought in as God's people through Christ's death so that they may now obey his will. And in verse 2, Peter ends with a blessing. Um, as an aside, um, can ruling elders give a benediction? Yeah. They cannot. They can? They cannot. Teaching. What's that? Teaching elder. The teaching elder can, yes. Really, the question is, can, can ruling elders preach? <laughs> can ruling elders preach? Well, we had, we had Connor. Didn't Connor recently? It's called an exhortation. That's right. It's called an exhortation. It's not technically preaching. Ruling elders in the PCA by the Book of Church, Church Order cannot preach. They cannot give it a, a benediction. So when Connor gave us a sermon, he was, he was basically exhorting us. It's called an exhortation. So technically speaking. This is hair splitting. Yes. <laughs> Well, it might be. The question is, it really comes down to a question of authority. A benediction is a formal, official declaration of God's word. That's what 1 Peter verse 2 is. A formal, official declaration of God's word. When a minister of God's word pronounces a blessing at the end of a church service, it is the action of God's spirit that gives power to his words. Grace is a gift, and God is the giver. The pastor's words of blessing are not magic. They do not communicate grace by their own power because an ordained minister speaks them. When they are spoken in faith to the people of God, God honors them. They are much more than wishes, more even than prayers. They declare God's own favor towards those who are in Christ. Um, Harry, yes. Yeah, I think that's a very good question. And I'm not sure I have the right answer to you, but I'll tell you where I draw the line, and that's in a formal corporate worship. In that setting, an ordained minister should be giving that benediction and doing the preaching. Ron? I think this, a lot of this is what we're talking about is rooted back into Presbyterianism. And it's, it's Presbyterianism accepts systematically, it's logical, and it, and it talks to the loyalty of leadership. So there's per different people that are designed and told that they do different things within Presbyterianism. When, when the pastor is preaching the word from the pulpit, and I mean that's pretty significant, that's the word of God coming from him. And we should take it as such, whether it be mm -hmm. the benediction or those other things. They are ordained 
to preach the word. You know, we are not, we're ordained, elders are ordained, but they're not ordained to preach the word of God. So we are ordained for different means and different reasons of what we're supposed to do. So if you're outside reading somebody and saying, hey, I hope you have a good day, hope you have a blessed day, whatever, that's okay. So there's no big deal there. But when you're standing up in front of the congregation at that pulpit, that holy spot in the church, and he's up there, uh, and we're receiving the word of God, and he's delivering the word of God, holy, completely different um, atmosphere that we're in. We need to elevate that and you know, and that's in case why some of these, that's why you see in the old Presbyterian churches that the the, the, the um, pulpit was elevated, well, ours is elevated, not nothing like it was in the old churches, but it was the idea of elevating that position and saying, hey, uh, and you go to the Book of Church Order and you can see that the uh, teaching elders are to have double um, respect from the congregation um, and all of these things. And it's, it's designed that way because that's what it's supposed to be. They're ordained. They're held in a different responsibility than the elders and the deacons or even the congregation. So there is, we're not splitting hairs here. It's, it's distinct jobs that people are supposed to do, just like um, the Trinity, God, the Holy Spirit, and Christ. They all have the same things that they do, but they work in concert together to accomplish God's work. So that's, and we parallel that in our teaching elders, our ruling elders, deacons, and such like that, and, and authority of the church. And so I think that's, I don't know if that makes it more clear, but I think that's where it's rooted from. Thanks, Ron. Any other thoughts or questions before we move on to verses 3 through 12? Is there a clear, formal way to distinguish preaching from exhortation? No, I don't think so. Um, outside of just who's delivering the message. Oh, so we just, okay. So we just call it preaching. If it's being delivered by a teaching elder, we call it exhortation. If it's being delivered by anyone else, right? A, a ruling elder. Okay. Yeah. All right. That's fine. So Peter begins his letter with praise to God for redemption began in the Father's love and mercy for fallen humanity. I'm not going to read verses three to twelve. We'll go through them uh, verse by verse here. In these verses, Peter lists the blessings that have come to those who have put their faith in Christ. Mm-hmm. At the end of chapter 1, Peter claims that the churches are born again through the living and enduring word of God. That's in verse 23. According to Genesis 1, God creates the world by his word and fashions Adam and Eve into existence. The adjective living appeals to God's word as possessing life within itself and thus able to grant life. Peter supports this statement in verse 23 by appealing to Isaiah 40, verse 8. Verses 24 to 25. All people are like grass, and all, the glo- all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fail, but the word of our Lord endures forever. The believers in Asia Minor can be confident that God is in the process of creating a new, perfect world that will never perish, but will last for all eternity. They must not lose heart in the midst of affliction, as their salvation is bound up with that end-time renewal. Believers are caught, as we are now, in the overlap of the ages. What does that mean? When Christ came, he inaugurated the new age. But yet the old age and the effects of the fall still persist. You see, the Old Testament writers generally did not perceive such an overlap of the ages. Since to them, the old age was to give way decisively to the new age. And there's two graphs in your, in your hand out there. 
Now, I want to point out that in the, in the gray, in the gray scale, it doesn't really show it that well, but there's gray, red, and then green. And on the second graph, there's, there's green and red. So the green is on top and the red is on bottom, just to highlight there. So if you look at verse, if you look at figure 13 there, this is how the Old Testament writers thought that history would unfold. There would, there would be history's, Israel's old age, and then there would be the antagonist, which would be the Antichrist, suffering, tribulation, false teaching, and then, in linear fashion, the Messiah would come. The kingdom would come. The Israel would be restored. There would be the age of the Spirit, then resurrection, and then the new eternal cosmos. But in reality, what, is, what has happened is, in the second graph, verse 14, is we have Israel's old age, and now we have the overlap of the ages. Where right now, we're in this overlap. Where we're in the age of the Antichrist. Where we're, we experience suffering. We, we, we experience tribulation. There is false teaching in the church. But the new age has already been inaugurated when Christ came and he died and he rose and the spirit was poured out. That inaugurated the new age. So that right now we're in the overlap of the ages. Now will that overlap persist for all, forever? No. When Christ comes, the antagonist, the suffering, tribulation will all be dealt with. Believers will be with him in heaven, where there will be no more tears, no more crying, no more tribulation, no more suffering. That's what we look forward to. But the key is that that age has already been inaugurated in Christ. When Christ came and died on the cross and rose again, and his spirit was poured out, his spirit lives within us. And that inaugurates the new age. Although we don't fully realize it, we do live in that new age. So what is the practical import of this? What does that mean for us? Do any of you have besetting sins? I do. Besetting sins. Sins that, you know, are bad habits for you. We all do. If we're honest with ourselves. Now, can those, do those sins, does that does Satan control us? Does he have control over us with those sins? Are we helpless? No. No. We have the power of Christ. We have the power of the Spirit. Thanks be to God for that. Every time a person comes to faith in Jesus Christ, it's a new creation. So that's how we have this overlap of the ages. Though all the facets of the latter days have begun to be filled in Christ and the, and the church, they have not reached their full consummation, their full state of fulfillment. The New Testament still looks forward to the future when God will fully establish the kingdom physically resurrect believers and unbelievers and create the physical new heavens and earth. Any questions or thoughts about that? Why is the old age now called escalated? Uh, because there is a greater working of Satan. Right? Oh. We saw that during the time of Christ, but we see that even now. Revelation talks about a time where Persecution will be increased. False teachers will have a larger platform.
So verses 3 through 5 are Peter's doxology. What is a doxology? Very good. Praise to God. Exactly. So Peter begins with the doxology of praise for what God has done by raising Christ from the dead, through which God gives Christians new birth and an eternal inheritance. Verse 3 is the new birth. New birth implies that Christians have a new identity and character that redefines their relationship with God and with society. Peter looks to what God has already done by raising Jesus from the dead, to the present preservation of those who are God's, and to the future inheritance when God's salvation is fully revealed. So Peter looks at what God has already done. Let's write two words on the board here. Someone tell me if they know what, I'm, what they mean or what I'm getting at. Any thoughts on what these words mean or where we're going with this? Well, let's say them one at a time. What does indicative mean? Statement of fact. Statement of fact. What has been done, right? Very good. What does imperative mean? Or will be done, right? No, what has been done. <laughs> what is imperative? A demand. Let's let's look at it in theological terms. Indicative. <laughs> indicative is, These are also grammatical terms. They are. Okay. We're going somewhere. So. <laughs> indicative is what has been done, and their imperative is what you are to do. Okay, They're fancy words, but the main point is what has been done, what we are to do. What does Peter tell us here? Peter looks to what God has already done. This is Christianity, okay? What God has done. This is where we start. Because we can't do it ourselves. We are in Adam, we're fallen. We are helpless. The only hope we have is that God will do something for us, and he has. He sent his son down across for our sins. And now we live in him. But this is Christianity. This comes first, and then this. Because of what Christ has done, now we are to go out and live holy lives. What happens if we put this first, and then this? We don't know what we're to do. If we put this first, it means... We're elevating ourselves to Christ's authority. Right. Because we're, we're, the imperative is not what Christ... Exactly. Very, very good, Keith. If we put this first, it means that what we do earns our way into heaven. That is not Christianity. Every other world religion puts this first. Do this and live. Be holy and you'll go to heaven. Be a good person. Be a good person, right. And that's how you get to heaven. That's not what Christianity is. Christianity is what God has done in Christ. It turns the whole thing around. It totally, this is totally man-centered, and this is God-centered. 
What does that mean for us when we struggle with sin? Well, we, we're going through tough times. Should we be focused on what we need to do? I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but what should our focus be? Our focus should always be what God has done in Jesus Christ. That is our ground. That is our foundation. That is the only hope that we have. If it's dependent upon us, we're done. We're too weak. We need grace. We need the Holy Spirit. It's the only hope we have in life. Yes, Ron. And we tie that together, what Christ has done for us, you know, his righteousness has been imputed into us, so therefore we should persevere. Yes. And those who have been called by Christ have been elected. We can then stand and persevere, and we are to persevere when things are good, when things are bad, when things are in between. And we continue to persevere in Christ and in the Spirit uh, with, their, with their power, like you already said. But that's really, you know, this is the perseverance of the, of the saints. Until either Christ comes again or we stand before God right. in heaven. Right. That's right. So Christ's resurrection spells hope for us, not just because he lives, but because by God's mercy we live. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. By the resurrection of Christ, God has given life not only to him, but to us. We are given new birth by God. He fathers us by the resurrection of His Son. In Christ's triumph, God makes all things new, beginning with us. The Father who gives new birth to His children through the resurrection of Christ, also through Christ, brings them to a living faith. Verse 5. Our faith and hope are in God, His living word, the good news of the gospel. This is what has brought us to life. The things to which old believers in the Old Testament times looked forward to have now happened. Yet we too look for a future. The salvation that was earned by Christ's resurrection and planted in our hearts by the seed of the word will be revealed completely when Christ comes again in glory. Our hope is anchored in the past. Jesus rose. Amen. But our hope remains in the present. Jesus lives. He currently is in heaven. What's he doing? He's praying for us. But our hope is completed in the future. Jesus is coming back. The Apostle Peter leads us to praise God that our salvation is his work. We cannot even begin to accomplish it. And we do not in any sense deserve it. Thoughts thoughts or questions? Well, let's move on to verse 4. Kept heaven, kept in heaven for you. Our inheritance is guarded in heaven. As such, it is untouched by troubles in this life. In verse 5, who through faith are shielded by God's power. God himself not only keeps his inheritance, but also guards those from whom he has prepared salvation. And then verses 6 through 9. Suffering is a part of the Christian life. Do Christians suffer? Yes. Does that mean we're bad Christians? No. No, that's right, Jim. Some people believe that it's God's responsibility to prevent bad things from happening. And often this expectation is disappointed, right? Embracing the Christian faith does not provide an insurance policy against suffering. 
the profession of faith in Christ may sometimes actually cause suffering. The reflection, reflecting on what God has done for us fills us with exultant joy. Peter says, in this joy greatly rejoice. This text can also be translated, in whom you greatly rejoice. Since Peter uses the verb in verse 8 to describe our joy in Christ, he is likely thinking not just of all the blessings we have in Christ. He's not being joyful just because of the blessings that we have in Christ, but he's being joyful because of Christ in whom we have the blessings. We rejoice in Jesus, the God-man. But from there, dramatically, Peter moves from ecstasy to agony. He says, we who rejoice in Christ suffer grief and all kinds of trials. No doubt Peter here is not only thinking of suffering Christians, but of Christ himself. Peter well knew how Jesus had been put to grief. Yet but because of his grief, we have joy, even in our suffering. But now we're getting into, really, what is Peter's main concern in this letter? What is the heart of the letter? He wants to assure Christians of their hope as they face trials. And he gives four reasons why we can not only endure trials, but rejoice in these trials. And the first reason is, our hope in Christ points us beyond the trials. Our troubles last only for a little while, but our hope in Christ is forever. Jesus himself endured the cross and despised the shame because of the joy that was set before him. Not, not, not only does our joy point beyond grief, but in the second place, our faith is actually strengthened through the very sufferings that we endure. Our faith is strengthened through sufferings. Peter has declared that God's, God keeps us for glory by faith. Our faith, then, must continue to the end of our lifelong pilgrimage. This goes back to what Ron said, the assurance of salvation, right? Our faith will continue to the end of our lives for true Christians because it's God who does that. If our faith is to endure, it must be purified, it must be stress-tested. Peter says, like gold, it must pass through the furnace, in verse 7. So trials should not surprise us or cause us to doubt God's faithfulness. God sends trials to strengthen our trust in Him so that our faith will not fail. Our trials keep us trusting. They burn away our self-confidence and drive us to our Savior. Fire does not destroy gold. It only removes impurities. Yet even gold will vanish at the whole end of this created order. Faith is infinitely more precious and more enduring. One scholar says, Like a jeweler putting his most precious metal in the crucible, so God proves us in the furnace of trial and affliction. The genuineness of our faith shines from the fire to his praise. So, our trials keep us trusting. They burn away our self-confidence and drive us to our Savior. And the third reason is, this third reason that joins joy to suffering 
is, we know that when Jesus comes, he will bring far more than an end to the suffering. He will bring us the reward of blessing. Our trials are never forgotten by the Lord. He keeps our tears in a bottle, as one theologian said. Paul says that our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that outweighs them all. Our present sufferings cannot be compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. Peter, too, speaks of the crown of glory that does not fade away. In chapter 5, we see that he brings this to light, that we receive this crown of glory when Christ comes. Our faith will then be found to be precious, for it by we and he will receive praise, glory, and honor. Now, Peter saw the glory of the Lord when he was transfigured on the mountain. He heard the promise of his return, and he ascended into the clouds. He knows that the end of all things is near. Judgment is already beginning for the people of God. The day of God when the universe will be remade is the day of the Lord, the day when Jesus will be revealed. That day brings terror to those who do not know the Lord, but brings joy beyond expression to those who love Him. And in the fourth place, the supreme reason for joining joy to suffering comes into view. That reason goes beyond even the glory that we will receive from the hand of the Lord. For of course, our, tests, our tested faith does not earn the glory that will be given to us. We receive glory as we share in Christ's glory. Indeed, it is not even certain that Peter is speaking of the praise, glory, and honor that we receive. He is likely referring to the praise God receives from our proven faith. In chapter 4, verse 11, Peter will say, We seek in all things that God may be glorified. If we receive crowns of glory, it will be to our joy to cast them at the feet of our Savior. When Jesus Christ is revealed, the gold of our faith will shine to his praise. The whole nature of suffering is changed for the Christian when we realize that our anguish brings honor to Christ. Peter reflects on the love that his readers have for Christ, love that makes them ready to suffer so that their proven faith can be his tribute. Peter says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Peter, of course, had seen the Lord. Peter's love for Jesus brings these pictures to mind. When Jesus was in Capernaum, being served by Peter's mother-in-law, cured of her fever. Jesus on the sea, lifting Peter from the water, saying, You have little faith, why are you so afraid? Jesus in the hall of the high priest, looking at Peter after his denials. Jesus on the cross. Jesus, alive again, sitting by the coals of fire on the shore of the Lake of Galilee, saying, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Peter had seen Jesus and loved him. Does it amaze him that the distant and scattered Gentiles who never seen Jesus also know and love him? Peter knows well that it is not a physical association with Jesus that joins him to his Savior. Peter knows that Jesus is the Son of God by the gift of the Father in heaven is applied to him by the Spirit of God. And he realizes that the Gentiles now too have received that same Spirit. We too have that same Spirit. By faith, we Gentiles who have never seen Jesus may share with Peter in loving him through the Spirit. It is not necessary for us to have been in Galilee with Jesus, 
Through the witness of Peter and the other apostles, we learn about what Jesus said and what Jesus did. They bear witness through the Holy Spirit, and by the witness of the Holy Spirit, we are brought to know and love the living God. We do not see Jesus. We do not now see Jesus, but we will see Jesus. In verse 8, Peter contrasts the past and present with the future. The day is coming when Jesus will be revealed. And that day, the goal of our faith will be realized. Our eyes will behold the one in whom we have trusted and loved. Any thoughts or questions before we move on? Peter's expressions march forward. He says, you have not seen Jesus, but you love him. You do not see Jesus, but you believe in him. You will see Jesus and rejoice in him. But notice the change that Peter makes here. He says that you are, present tense, filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Not only do we have faith in Jesus and love for Jesus now, we also know already that the joy we will experience when we see him. Such is the faith of those who know and love Jesus. The salvation of our souls in the last day is the goal of our faith. We wait for the salvation that Christ will bring with him at his appearing. But yet we already experience this salvation now. In this paradox, that we wait for the salvation that will come, but yet we are already experiencing it now, this paradox is the core of the New Testament hope. Because Jesus has already come in the flesh and in the Holy Spirit, the kingdom of God has been inaugurated. Our hope is realized. We know Jesus. But because Jesus is coming again, the kingdom of God is yet to come in its fullness. The goal of our faith is still future. So in a way, we as Christians, we live in a future that is already present. Not just in imagination or expectation, but in realization. The reality of Christ's presence in the Spirit. Everyone understand that concept? The kingdom of God has been inaugurated. It means it's been initiated, started, right? But it's not been fulfilled. We wait for its fulfillment. But even now, we have God's Spirit within us. It empowers us for daily living, for holy living. Because of what Christ has done for us, we now go, we now go out and live holy lives by His grace. Holiness doesn't isn't really connected to how we behave and what we do and think. That He has consecrated our lives, and so they are by definition holy. Whether we're particularly good one day or whether we fail to live up to our own prescriptions for ourselves. Yes, John. Um, that goes to our justification, right? Mm-hmm. Will we ever be more justified in Christ than we are right now? No. If we have a bad day, if we have a setback, if we lose our temper, do something that we regret, we sin, does it mean we are less justified in the eyes of God? Why is that? When he looks at us, does he see that sin? Does he see that anger? What does he see? He sees Christ's righteousness. That's exactly right. He sees the righteousness of his son. That righteousness is not our own. 
It's a righteousness that Luther called what? Luther. Martin Luther. He called this righteousness that we have in Christ. What did he call it? An alien righteousness. Alien to us. It is not our righteousness that justifies us. It is the righteousness of the Son. This is that big word that Ron said earlier. It's called imputation. Right? On the cross, there was a great exchange. Our sin, the ugliness, the, the heinousness of our sin, our rebellion against God, is transferred to Christ. And we receive His righteousness. He lived the life that we cannot live. He loved God every second with all his heart, soul, and mind. He earned a righteousness. That's why he was born as a man. That's why he was raised as a child and lived a life where he never sinned. That, that was a work that he was doing. And it wasn't for him. It was for his people. He was earning a righteousness. Earning a favor that he could give his people. And that's what God, when he looks at us, he sees the righteousness of his son. Any thoughts or questions? Well, in verse 6, Peter says, Suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Because of their new birth, Christian believers are to have different values, allegiances, and privileges. These bring great joy, but also may cause believers to experience hardship within their society. Verse one, verse 7, part A, the proven genuineness of your faith. When Peter's readers suffer without sinning, their faith like gold is purified and is tested. Suffering because one believes in Christ proves the genuineness of one's faith and the certainty of one's salvation, which is the reason for joy. And then verse 7, part B, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Christ is revealed. For Peter, conversion is an event that has already happened in the lives of his readers, but their full salvation is a future event, not fully realized until Jesus returns. And then in verse 9, the salvation of your souls. Does this ex exclude the body? No, right? It refers to the whole person. When we're raised again, we are going to be raised body and soul. The time when we die, before Jesus comes, our bodies are in the ground, or wherever they may be, but our souls are in heaven. But that is a temporary stage. We are created to have body and soul together. And when Christ returns, our souls and our bodies will be reunited with Christ in heaven. So verses 10 through 12. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. Verse 11, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. And then verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Jesus Christ as the giver of eternal life is God's fullest and final revelation of himself 
That's, this means that for most of human history, people who turned to God, such as the prophets, had only hints of what God would one day fully reveal. Although there is much wonder about the second coming of Christ, God has fully revealed that all we need to know for him in this life. God's redemption of humankind is even of great interest to the angels. To live in this era with full access to the gospel is indeed a profound privilege. Verse 10 says, The prophets searched intently. Even though the prophets were inspired by God, they were not omniscient, meaning they did not know everything. And there is much that we know now that they wish to know. What does Jesus say about John the Baptist? I'm just going to paraphrase, but what did he say? Amongst men, there's no, there's no man greater than he. When this, what does he go on to say? Of those that are in the kingdom of God, now are greater than him. Oh, yeah. Right? Then some way, we have some greater revelation of Christ. Not, we have a greater revelation of Christ, not even John the Baptist did. Is that because of the Holy Spirit? Yes, it's because what the Jesus coming, dying, being resurrected, pouring out his spirit. Yes, John. Verse 11, the spirit of Christ. Christianity was not a new upstart religion, but rather the culmination of God's plan from the beginning of time. For it was the spirit of Christ who inspired the prophets of the Old Testament, such as Isaiah, when they foresaw the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. Now this theme, the suffering of the Messiah, is a theme that runs through the, the, the entire Bible. It is most prominent point about Jesus Christ in this letter. So those who follow in the footsteps of Christ should also expect to suffer for their obedience to God. But after their suffering, we will enter into, into glory as Jesus did. Any present suffering becomes more bearable knowing the certainty of the hope that lies ahead. Then in verse, verse 12, it was revealed to them that were serving not themselves but you, and the things that have been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things in which angels long to look. The things that have now been told to you by those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. The Apostle Peter was present on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit descended upon the infant church. Since that time, Christians enjoy a privileged position because we who have received the gospel have knowledge of the very things that ancient prophets searched intently to understand. The prophecies of old were written to confirm the gospel once God has sent his Son. The sufferings and glories of Christ are of great interest even to angels. So although Peter's readers were being ostracized by their society because of the gospel, they nevertheless enjoyed as do all Christians since, a very privileged status in comparison to the prophets and the angels. Any thoughts, discussion? Does this, leader, does this letter speak to you? I certainly need this letter. 
Yes, Ron. I think it's important, and you brought it up as well. Again, um, when we go through hard times, persecution, whatever it is, and even when we're going through good times, but, you know, we do not advance in our knowledge of God, our care for God, our love for God. If we were left our own devices, we would wander away as a sheep wandering away from the earth. And uh, it's caught on its back and can't get turned over. Uh, if we were left our own devices. But God doesn't do that. He, he uses these crucible moments, these times that we're in despair, that we're in, you know, whatever the situation is, is to draw us to his, himself. And so for us to realize and to pray to him and to make our relationship with him much closer than it ever has been. That's what I found in my life. And it's, it's important to understand that because then when these things are going on, we don't necessarily understand them. We go through all the grief and all the things and the other emotions that we have, and that's fine because God gave us those emotions as well. Um, it's the, you know, what are you teaching me, God? What are you showing me? How, how, how should I grow through this situation? And that takes a mature attitude to kind of look at it from that perspective and, and, and grow closer to God. And it's not an easy thing. It is not easy. Uh, and but yet that's what we're called to do. We're, we're called to persevere, and that's how our sanctification we become closer to God. So it's it's important to to realize that this is a tool. This is God working in our lives to make us more godlike. Right. Um, we don't think like God. We don't do and live our lives according to what God would have us do. Um, and so He He puts us through these things to draw us to Himself. And you know, we should be thankful for that. Thanks be to God. Because without that, our relationships with Him would be pale compared to what they could be or should be. Thank, thank you, Ron. That's a very good point. What did C.S. Lewis call trials in, in life? He called them like a God's megaphone. It's a way of calling us back to God. But I think, Ron, you make a good point. When we do go through trials, we do face hardships. The pain is real, isn't it? The grief is real. We all feel that. It's not like we go through life stoic and saying, well, we're above all this. This doesn't affect us because of what Christ has done for us. No, we live in the tears and the pain of this world. We suffer. We suffer greatly. But it's in the midst of that suffering where we go back to not what we need to do to get ourselves out of it. We go to what God has done for us. This is where we should live daily. And that's what it means when people say, preach the gospel to yourselves daily. Daily, think about what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. When you're feeling that pain, immerse yourselves in the scriptures. And thank God what he has done for you in Christ. And, and know that these trials, these afflictions, this pain is only but a brief moment. And eternal glory awaits us in our Savior, where he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And there will be no more death, no more pain, no more suffering. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for this time of teaching. We pray that you would use it to strengthen our faith and our dependence upon you. Lord, make us die to ourselves more and more each day and live for Christ. Thank you what you have done for us in him, Lord. Thank you for giving us your spirit. We are completely dependent upon you, Lord. Lord, now we pray that you prepare our hearts and our minds for worship. Allow the worship service glorify, to glorify you. Use it to strengthen our faith that you may be glorified. We pray in Christ's name, amen.